0: Okay. Refreshed break. One more. We got it in us. Um okay, uh a few quick quick notes from conversations I had between um between our sessions there. Uh one was a couple books to recommend. Uh I talked a lot about Truman's uh Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self there in that in, in my last lecture, and somebody reminded me that I'd forgotten this. Uh, that book is a little bit of a difficult read, but um, Truman uh, wrote, apparently he just came out with a more accessible, abridged version of his arguments in, um, who reminded me of this? Strange New World, is that right? Who reminded me of that? Strange New World, yeah. So, if, if Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self uh, might be too thick. Strange New World, I think, is a little bit more accessible, though still um, difficult. But um, you know, I just I just gave you what he said, so you, you, you can just you know. But you get it, all right. And then the other one is I also mentioned uh, Charles Taylor, Secular Age. Uh, that that will be the, if you if you want to get into Charles Taylor's scholarship on secularity, that will be the hardest book uh, you will ever read in your life. Uh, many have tried, almost all have failed. Um, So I prefaced Charles Taylor's Secular Age with the massively important and helpful book by Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, who is a philosopher at Calvin College who recognized how important Charles Taylor's scholarship is, but how inaccessible it is. So he did the world a favor by writing a very accessible, easy uh, great book called "How Not to Be Secular," not in parentheses. "How Not to Be Secular," and that if you read Jamie's book, um, that will be that will give you really everything that Charles Taylor um, says there. So two two resources there, and then Josh actually did ask me to share with you. Um, what, what, when, I'm, when I talked about how we're taking on the pornography industry in Kentucky, he, he, he thought it might be encouraging for you to hear that and then maybe for you all to even dream about reproducing it. I love to talk about my work at Christ for Kentucky. Our mission is uh, public theology and strategy for the common good of the common wealth. Um, and so when I talk about public theology and public strategy, what I'm trying to bring together is uh, what I think is deficient in, in evangelical um, social engagement is um, it's, its there's a lot of public public theology is just a fancy word to talk about the theological discipline of, pro, of applying the Christian worldview into uh, the social life, the public square. It's just Christian thought leadership, fancy way to talk about Christian thought leadership. And there's a lot of good Christian thought leaders out there. There's a lot of great ideas out there, a lot of good books out there, a lot of good podcasts out there. But I'm a student of culture, and I recognize how utterly deficient ideas are. They just, especially now, they just kind of live in the ether and get caught in algorithms, and um, and ideas have been monetized, and so it's more of a tickling the ears rather than actually going anywhere. And ideas do have consequences, I believe that, but ideas are not as powerful as we give them credit for. You have to couple um, public theology with robust public strategy. You have to get strategic about implementing those ideas, and so what I now have the freedom to do since I've stepped away from conventional pastoral ministry is to not just do the thought leadership in Kentucky, but actually combine that with some strategic implementation, and one of those projects that we're working on, um, I love talking about our work if you're interested, and especially I think some of you all said you, you, you come from northern Kentucky, I'd love to meet you, talk about it, but one of those is the epidemic of pornography. Among our youth, and so uh, what we're doing, um, I've I've been working all year with the president of Kentucky's Senate and the Speaker of Kentucky's House, um, and some influential folks behind the scenes to uh, basically advocate for, and I think I think we're going to be able to pull them off in January's session. Three pieces of legislation. Um two of them are directly tied to pornography, one is social media. So the social media one is because, because our youth are typically first exposed to pornography and predatorial behavior on social media um, and off of the sexuality stuff and just more on the, um, the detriments of social media itself. What we're doing is we're essentially arguing from contractual law that agreeing to terms and services is, by definition, signing a contract. So when you agree to the terms and services, a social media account, we are arguing that that is signing a contract with the social media account um, because, as you know, in social media, you are the product. Um, and so what, what we're basically saying is we're saying minors cannot sign a contract without parental consent. And so we're passing a piece of legislation in Kentucky that says for uh, youth in Kentucky to sign um, to sign up for a social media account, they have to have written consent uh, from their parents. So, of course, parents can give their children permission to be on social media, but no child will be able to just create a profile their don't, parents don't know about. Um, at, at the very least, a parent has to check, or or a, or a, you know, somebody in their life, um, uh, their dependents, whoever they're dependent of, will have to sign. That's so social media. The two pornography ones we're doing, one is has already been done in a few states, but I think uh, um, what we're proposing will be a little bit more effective for a variety of reasons. But we are going to implement um, strict, robust age verification to access online pornography. So um, as you may know, uh, the, to, to go onto these major porn sites now, it's, a lot of them don't require anything, but if they require anything, it's just click 18. Um, So we're passing a a law that says um, if you're going to transmit pornography into Kentucky, um, you have to, in order to access that pornography, you have to upload a valid form of ID, or you have to apply and get a digital ID online. You have to prove that you are an adult in order to access pornography online in Kentucky. The third one is, is the most controversial one that has not been tried in any state, but it it, um, it argues from what are called right of publicity laws. Um, the, the, the way, if you're a fan of college athletics, the way you've probably heard of this type of legislation that's taking place is the name, image, and likeness uh, stuff. So now college athletes are allowed to, basically they argue, I own the name, image, and likeness. That's what's called right of publicity laws. Those used to only be applied to celebrities, which essentially there are laws that say you can't just take a celebrity's image or likeness, or name, and use it for your own uh, monetization without their consent, obviously. They used to only be applied to celebrities, but in the age of the Internet, those right of publicity laws are being applied across the board because you're one uh, viral post away from being a significant um, opportunity for monetization. And so now everyone basically owns, legislatively owns, the right to their name, image, and likeness. So we're passing a creative uh, piece of legislation in Kentucky that I'm really excited about and proud of that um, is arguing that Kentuckians own the right to the image of their naked body according to right of publicity laws. They own the right to the images of their naked body. Therefore, pornography websites are not allowed to display images of Kentuckians in their content without uh, written consent renewed every three years and what that will do is twofold, well, threefold. Two explicitly: one, uh, those—it's it's, just—it's just an act of justice for those who got into the industry and are now living with regrets. But currently, there is absolutely no way to get your pornography off the internet, um, and so those who got into the industry are now living with shame and regret. Through Kentucky law, they have legal recourse to bring um, civil lawsuits against these companies unless they take down their content because they're no longer giving consent for that. Then the really unjust practice of uploading images without consent, which a lot of pornography is. um, Kentuckians who have their their images uploaded without their consent now have a legal way to get it off the Internet. And that in itself is a beautiful thing, but the byproduct of it that's not in the legislation but we're really excited about is policy experts have kind of reviewed these efforts, think that what Kentucky basically is doing with our age verification, these right of publicity laws, is that we're going to uh, make it such a logistical nightmare for pornography sites to operate in Kentucky that they're just going to back out of Kentucky altogether, and maybe we can have a porn-free state across... Cross the river from y'all, so we 'll see you can pray for those, but, like I said, if you have connection to Ohio legislators i 'd love to sit down with them what we 're trying to do is write a blueprint for other states to reproduce. Uh, Christians are way too obsessed with federal politics, which have absolutely no bearing on your life outside of foreign policy and a few and Supreme Court justices. All the change is local level, so if you actually can get out of the obsession with federal politics and start to say, "What can I do state and locally?" You'd be surprised how much you can actually get done um, in your state. So if, if if you have connections, I'd be glad to to help you with that. So anyway, um, yeah, that's that, that's what we're doing. That's what you wanted me to share, Josh. Yeah, okay, okay. I had a. Is there a like a Lacroix there or whatever they're called? Sparkling something. My mouth is dry. Thank you. Okay, we began. With the revelation of Eros as the Trinity's eternal exchange of love, this eternal exchange is found in his image bearers where male and female likewise participate in their own exchange of love through the erotic one-flesh union. We just discussed the redirection of Eros where erotic love is turned inward, redirected away from the Trinity and toward the self. Thus, selfless erotic love is replaced by selfish erotic lust. It was heavy, painful for all of us in different ways, I I know. Now we get to watch God rescue the love story, rescue Eros from what we have done to it. And amazingly, he is going to rescue sex, but he's going to use sex to rescue sex. I'm calling this the resurrection of Eros. The first seminal word from Jesus that John Paul uses To explore creation is from the beginning it was not so. The second seminal word from Jesus that John Paul uses to explore the fall is anyone who looks upon another to lust after them has committed adultery. Now we turn to the third and final seminal word from John Paul's scholarship um, that that he uses to explore kind of the the redemption of the story, to use that language. And it comes from a discussion that Jesus had with the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe that there would be a final resurrection of the dead. If you are unfamiliar with Christianity or unfamiliar uh, with this part of Christianity, it's important for you to know uh, for this lecture that we do not believe souls going to heaven after death is the end. We believe just like Jesus is risen from the dead, when he returns, we too will be raised from the dead. In fact, all of creation is going to go through a resurrection of sorts. And in this way, our final destiny will quite literally be heaven on earth. Well, the Sadducees didn't believe that. And so they come to Jesus with a thought experiment that they thought would disprove his uh, teachings on the resurrection and stump him. I won't read the whole passage, but essentially they present a scenario of a wife whose husband dies, she remarries, that husband dies, she remarries again, and so forth. So a woman with multiple husbands in this life, then they ask Jesus, in this supposed resurrection you speak of, who will she be married to? And when we understand the answer that Jesus gives, John Paul argues we will understand the full and final meaning of erotic love. Jesus says, quote, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nobody will be married in the resurrection, and nobody will get married in the resurrection. Now, at first glance, this seems to go against everything we have been discussing this weekend. Perhaps we have overstated the glory of gender and sex and marriage as the high point of God's image in creation. How could it be so central to creation if it has no place in the resurrected creation? John Paul argues that the true mystery Of erotic love is unveiled when we answer the question, why will there be no marriage or giving of marriage in the resurrection? And the answer is astounding. We won't marry each other because we will be married to God. The Bible begins with marriage and ends with marriage, but they are different marriages. In the beginning, as we saw last night, Adam marries Eve. In the end, Is a wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God who dies to purify his people, marries his purified bride for whom he died. Here is the great mystery. Let me state it up front and then we will spend um, the rest of our time unpacking it. In creation, God gave erotic love between male and female as an icon of the eternal exchange of love the Trinity has forever enjoyed and experienced. But it's just an icon. An earthly picture of a heavenly reality. We don't sexualize the Trinity. You've heard me say it many times. We don't sexualize the Trinity. Instead, the Trinity gave us sex as an illustration of what He has forever enjoyed. Well, in the resurrection, the bride of Christ is married to the bridegroom Jesus, meaning we marry into the family. At that point, who cares about sex? we get to experience that which sex has always pointed toward. The icon gives way to the reality and our destiny is to enjoy the eternal love exchange of God forevermore. That's a lot. Let me back up and watch it unfold. After the fall of Genesis 3 that we discussed earlier, God's glorious story of creation, turns into his glorious story of redemption. And as only our God can do, far from ruining his plan with the fall, he takes the fall and writes an even better love story. It's the ultimate what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We ruined Eros, but God then uses Eros to rescue Eros, and in the end, the eros we enjoy far surpasses the eros that was lost. Let me tell you that story, and we will end our time with some final applications. God's word to Satan in Genesis 3 directly after the fall is this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. You've probably heard that. If you, if you remember this, church, you have heard that verse many times before. But now in light of everything that we have discussed So far, I wonder if it takes on a different meaning. God is going to crush Satan through the coming seed of a woman. Do you know what that means? God is going to use sex to win his cosmic battle. Generation after generation after generation of erotic love is going to give birth, quite literally, to salvation. Countless male, female, one-flesh unions are going to keep the promise of Genesis 3.15 alive in the world. I told you yesterday the genitals declare the love of the Lord. Well, after the fall, that takes on a whole new meaning. The genitals now declare the saving love of the Lord. Quite literally, the genitals now preach the gospel. By the way, uh, when I gave this talk, if you're tired of hearing that word, um, when I first gave these talks, um, I thought of this because one of our pastors from TCPC, I was tell, I, he asked me what I was doing today because Kentucky plays Tennessee at home and I can't be there. I'd rather be with you. But, um, but he, uh, he asked me, he's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm up in uh, Joshua's church preaching, uh, the giving the 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 Theology of the Body Talks, and he just wrote back in one text, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, genitals. (laughs) And when we were doing, uh, when I first delivered these lectures, they they were on person, but for those who couldn't be there, they streamed it live, which I wasn't a fan of that decision, but alas. Um, And I got a text from somebody that said, we've created a drinking game. And... (laughs) At home, and every time you say the word genitals, we're taking a sip, and it's not going well. <laughs> but listen, we got to recover these words, right? Language matters. Language matters. I could use another word, I suppose. But listen, gender is determined by genitals to create generations. That's the sentence that is the answer to the entire Trans ideology. What do you all believe? We believe in genitals. That create gender to create generations. That's what the Christian church believes. Anyway, what was I talking about? I just, there's my, I'm sorry. You only have one more genital lecture and then we're done. I won't talk about the sermon tomorrow, okay? We're good. All right. The genitals now declare the saving love of the Lord. They quite literally preach the gospel. Don't believe me? Think I'm reading too much into this? Well, how about we consider something else you've always known in light of what we've learned in this conference. What was God's covenant sign in the Old Testament? Ah. Oh, it makes sense. That crazy sign. All of God's promises are sealed in blood, but the bleeding instrument of God's Old Testament promise was the penis for a reason. Because that is what would deliver the sacred seed that would keep the promise of God's love alive for another generation. But a seed is nothing without the uniqueness of the female body. Without a womb where life is conceived and nurtured. Which is why the female body, more so than the male body, holds prominence in God's story of redemption. Oh sisters, your body though pornified by this culture, is holy ground. If you want to know what is most sacred to God, find what is most hated by God's enemy. And more than anything else, Satan hates your body. The uniqueness of your body. Satan hates the womb. We turn again to Genesis 3. God says to Satan, Notice, I will put enmity between you and And the woman. It's the woman that Satan is after. It's her womb. That holy space where God's promise of a coming seed will be conceived, protected, nurtured, and then delivered into the world. It is the womb that Satan is after. Have you ever noticed how prominent the theme of barrenness is to the story of the Old Testament? That's Satan trying desperately to stop that coming seed. What we see is that at key points of redemption story, a barren womb seems to put an end to the story. We call him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but we don't have that story unless God miraculously overcomes the barrenness of Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. King David, arguably the most important figure of the Old Testament, who is given the promise that from him will come the king of kings whose kingdom shall have no end. Well, David was, as you know, an unlikely choice to be king. How was he chosen? How did he rise? He was chosen and anointed king by a prophet Samuel. Well, Samuel's mother Hannah was barren and went to the temple and begs God for a son, which God provides, a son who will choose David to be king, who would give us King David's greater son, the Messiah Jesus Christ. Do you see? The coming, the story of the coming seed is, as God predicted, a story of Satan's enmity with the woman, and his efforts to turn her womb into a tomb, and kill the promise of God. But this is a battle Satan will not win. As God promised, the seed would prevail, and every single female body testifies to that promise. Directly after Genesis 3.15, again, so much of this just now starts to make sense, right? God said, why did he single this out? God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The female body, specifically the unique system of the female body, is now cursed. But this is not a meaningless curse. The uniqueness of female suffering uniquely testifies to the saving suffering of the coming seed. Every single month your body suffers and bleeds proclaiming the good news of a suffering, bleeding body that will save. Under the Old Testament law, during that time of the month, the female body was declared unclean and sent outside the camp, alone, in pain, unclean, cast off, testifying to the one who would suffer alone, unclean, and cast off. And when your womb does conceive, that conception gives way to a cross only you have been asked to bear. Your water breaks... And then blood flows, what well, flowed from Jesus when he was pierced on the cross, water and blood. Where did they pierce him? His side. From the side of Adam, his bride comes to life. From the side of the second Adam, his bride, the church comes to life. And when it's time to deliver, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children comes to pass your flesh tears, the torn flesh and broken body of a Savior on a cross. And then you want to talk about blood? Before we had kids, I I assumed there'd be blood during that part. I had no idea. All four times nearly passed out. But the bloody, bloodiness of childbirth testifies to the reservoir of saving blood shed by our Savior. And then ladies, your cross of childbirth yields new life, And your joy over that new life far surpasses the cross it took to produce it. Was it worth it? Every mother says a thousand times yes. Well, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. If you want to know whether the cross was worth it to Jesus, just ask a mother whether her cross was worth it. Ladies, your body is holy. And so the point I'm making is God created erotic sex, is the high point of creation. Because of sin, erotic sex has devastated creation, but then God chooses to use erotic sex to literally save creation. But there's an unthinkable twist to the story, this love story of ours. The prophets of God at times spoke of God's coming salvation with scandalous language, as though God himself is going to enter into the sacred love story. Let me give you a sampling. Isaiah sixty two. This is Almighty God. I mean, we just Christians just take this for granted. This is the transcendent, holy, Almighty God. Isaiah sixty two. For as a young man marries a young woman, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Hosea two. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. Ezekiel 16, I mean, just listen to these prophetic words. "'I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breast had formed and your hair had grown, yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by and I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body.' I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Okay, now this whole Eros thing is getting out of control. As if we haven't been uncomfortable enough up until this point, we now have God, via his prophets, using this language toward us. Well, it's about to get crazier. After everything you have heard this conference, let's... Let's turn to Luke 1. An angel of the Lord comes to a virgin. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, we don't do to Mary what the Catholics do to Mary, nor should we. But I'll say this. We don't do enough with her. She is the most favored female body the world has ever known. And her womb is the most hated womb in the history of Satan's hatred. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? This is different than infertility. This is different from barrenness of the Old Testament. I'm a virgin. Since the Garden of Eden, only the erotic union between male and female can yield conception in the womb. The angel announces a mystery that unlocks the greatest mystery of all eternity. God has chosen to enter the story of Eros. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Mary's womb becomes a tabernacle of the living God. And she gives birth to the story's second Adam. And Adam is after his bride. He begins his pursuit at a wedding feast. Do you remember how when I read those, remember when I read those uh, passages from Song of Solomon yesterday? How can I forget? Um, Well, did you notice how prevalent uh, wine was in those passages all over Song of Solomon to describe the intoxicating feelings of the erotic? Wine has always been synonymous with erotic love in every culture, Well, at the wedding of Cana, the wine runs out. And in the first miracle Jesus performs, he turns water into wine as if to say, I'm here to rescue this love story. And then he does that. I doubt you will ever hear these words the same again. My body given for you. And what John Paul says is the greatest act of erotic love ever performed. Jesus goes to the cross to save his bride. Genesis begins with, they were naked and unashamed. The first thing that happens after the fall is they cover their nakedness and shame. Well, I know that every single depiction of Jesus on the cross puts loincloths on him. I told you that we visited Italy and saw endless naked art with one noticeable exception, right? The only nakedness they covered was Jesus hanging on the cross. But this is only because we can't handle the irreverence of our Savior naked on the cross. But friends, we need to face it Jesus was hung naked and shamed so that we can once again recover again the blessed destiny of nakedness without shame. And then they laid the bridegroom in a tomb and it would seem the story is over. Now remember the aim of Satan's attack was to turn the womb into a barren tomb so that the seed of promise could not be conceived. Well, the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 enters a barren tomb. And what does he do? Christopher West says, Jesus turned the tomb into a womb. The tomb has become a fertile womb, giving birth to resurrection life. And now our resurrected bridegroom is saving himself for his bride. He is waiting for the culmination of this great erotic story, the wedding feast of the lamb who died to save his bride. Let me Describe that moment from a passage again you've heard many times before, but you're going to hear it differently now. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is the, that resurrection of all things. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. You ready? Prepared as a bride adored for her husband. This is why we will no longer have marriage or giving of marriage in the resurrection, for we will all be married to God. I'll say it one last time. We do not sexualize the Trinity. The Trinity gave sex to understand the Trinity. But in the resurrection, we won't need the illustration that points to the Trinity's love exchange. We will be welcomed into the Trinity's love that the Trinity has eternally enjoyed. What will it be like? I don't know. But if the pleasure of sex— is but a tiny foretaste indication. I cannot wait to get there and enjoy the fullness to which the icon points. Now, what in the world does this grand story of Eros mean for us in our present life? Outside of just hallelujah, worship the Lord, which I hope is in your hearts right now. But outside of just praise to our God, what does this mean for us now? Let me close with some practical applications for our lives. The preeminence of the erotic in God's story means that the erotic must hold preeminence in our story. We have argued that the erotic, more than anything else, shows us who God is, and now today shows us what God has done, is what I just argued. In our job is now to proclaim our God and His gospel through the erotic within us. The first and foremost application to all of us, and then I will break that out into two groups, but for right now, the first and foremost application to all of us in an age of fallen and chaotic eros, we bear witness to our world of properly ordered eros. It starts with our sexual repentance. Before any applications, it begins with our sexual repentance and healing of our sexual brokenness. All repentance is important, but no repentance is more significant than our repentance of sexual sins. I already told you that uh, we are simply not going to be able to argue our way out of this cultural moment. The only hope we have is to proclaim a better love story. Your repentance, your properly ordered eros, proclaims that story— Instead of endlessly saying to the world, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, it is time for us to show the world the beauty of what is right. And that begins with you repenting and renouncing lustful eros in your life and then embodying and practicing proper eros, thus telling with your life a better story. And so toward that end, I have two specific applications for us to the married among us and the single among us. Again, our world is desperate to behold a greater love story, and the marriages in this room and the singles in this room both have roles to play in that story's proclamation. First, to the married. The greatest testimony to the story we have been discussing at this conference, the greatest witness you have to offer this world of disordered eros the most important thing you can do to proclaim God's glorious erotic love story is for your marriage to embody the erotic of his design. After everything I have said this weekend, I do not think I'm about, what I'm about to say is going to come as a surprise to you. Your sex, your one flesh union is at the heart of your marriage. In fact, it's the indication of your marriage health. No sex or bad sex, I'll define that in a moment, means bad marriage. Good sex means good marriage. The erotic one-flesh union is the meaning of marriage. Tim Keller wrote a fantastic book. I commend it to every single one of you in this room. Again, last night I called He's the Protestant Pope, so listen. It's good. called The Meaning of Marriage. And he definitely discusses sex in that book, but the overall premise of the book, if you're familiar with it, is that love is a covenant. That's true in one sense. I've used that line many times, countless times. Love is not a feeling, love is a commitment, these types of things. And the idea is that love is less defined by emotions and circumstances and more by a covenant. That's an important word in our day and age where the idea of covenantal commitment has become obsolete. But with respect to the late Tim Keller, commitment is not the meaning of marriage. Erotic love is the meaning of marriage, as this conference has argued. The covenant, the vows that we take, are only there to provide a safe place for the erotic to flourish. And my fear candidly, is because we have, evangelicals have defined love as a covenant, we are content with this as our definition of marriage. I'm not going to get divorced. I'm going to stay faithful to my vows. I'm not going anywhere. This is what it means to love you. That is simply untrue. The singular ambition of marriage is rightly expressed erotic love, and here's the beauty. Here's the beauty of that as our meaning of marriage, for that to happen, you have to do marriage really well. Please understand, it is very easy to not have sex in marriage, and it's very easy to have lustful sex in marriage. Most are doing it. But for erotic love to happen, your entire marriage will be reordered. And this is why John Paul says that the goal of the sexual union is mutual orgasm. He doesn't say to expect it every time, but he says this should be the aim. And I don't have to tell any married couple here how hard that is to achieve. A lot of marriage work must be done, particularly by the husband, to achieve that. And so John Paul... Turns to complementary, he doesn't use that language as an evangelical term, but it's the same principle. He turns to complementarianism of all things. And he puts all the emphasis on the husband, such as the nature of gender. What does submission mean? It literally means submission, placing yourself under the mission of your husband. What is the mission of the husbands that the wives are placing themselves under? John Paul notes that it is for the husband to lay down his life for his wife. So, this is what a wife is submitting to in Christian ethics, a husband's whose mission is to lay down his life for her. He does not lead her with force, manipulation, shame, or anything else we associate with patriarchy. He loves her with a cross. Or as Paul puts it, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You do for your bride what Jesus did for us. And in this way, the wife loves because the husband first loved her. And John Paul plays this out in the erotic, not surprisingly. Because of the differences, the God-ordained differences in male and female sexuality, the man typically needs very little to orgasm. But what does the wife require? Typically a measure of love that takes days, weeks, Months, in some cases of sexual trauma, years of cruciformed, self sacrificing love to unlock the erotic within her. The husband's job is to bear that cross of delay gratification to get his bride to join him in a mutual, rapturous, erotic exchange of love. And the point is that what that requires guarantees. A great marriage. The singular pursuit of mutual erotic exchange of love requires so much sacrifice, so much intentionality, so much service, so much listening, so much I see you, I notice you, I love you, so much vulnerability, so much of what every single marriage in this room is longing for. In order for the marriage bed to be a space of love, not lust, means that marriage must be a really, really good marriage. And that's a marriage that proclaims to this world a better story, but not the best story. The greatest story of erotic love has been entrusted to those walking the path of celibacy. To my single friends, you are the heroes of erotic love, and I want you to see your nobility in this story. Remember how the Story took an interesting turn when Jesus entered in as a bridegroom to win his bride, the church. There will be no marriage or giving of marriage in heaven, for the icon will give way to the substance and we will join the eternal exchange of love. Well, it's the celibate single life, not the married life, that proclaims to us the full and final destiny of erotic love. Marriage may be a picture of the gospel, but your life is a picture of the final reward and destiny of the gospel. You are quite literally saving yourself for Jesus, saving yourself for the final reward, and we need your testimony so desperately. It is only the married among us who will ask, who ask the question: Do we get to be married in heaven? The single respond: What a stupid question. And we need that rebuke. We need that rebuke. We need to remember that Eros is not ultimately fulfilled in the icon of marriage, but in our final marriage to heaven's bridegroom. I don't know what God has for you. Perhaps He wants you to get married someday. Those desires and longings are beautiful and okay, and if they're stirred further in this conference, that's okay too. But what I do want you to know is that if that is what He has for you, Your marriage is not taking on a higher calling. You are living that higher calling as we speak. You are telling the world, and oh, how important this is in our age. You are telling our world that the ultimate fulfillment of erotic love is found in marriage to Jesus. I'm not pretending it's an easy path. But I at least want you to see this morning that it is a noble path. You are proclaiming to all of us in marriage that it's not ultimately about our marriage. It's about the marriage that is to come. And nobody will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb more than those who fasted from the icon to savor the real thing. You are witnesses with singular power. Your calling is singular in its nobility. And while he has you here... I hope you embrace how important you are to the story of erotic love as these noble prophets among us proclaiming that eros ends in Jesus. Okay, we need to close. It's been a great couple days. Again, thank you so much uh, for your attention. I know there's a lot, heavy, um, all that. Oh, thank you. I want to end with an illustration from C.S. Lewis. In The Great Divorce, there is a uh, moment when he depicts a soul about to enter into this resurrection. But before he does, he must contend with what Lewis calls the vice of lust. Remember the preeminence of lust in John Paul's scholarship. So there's a soul about to enter the resurrection, but before, before that he has to deal with this vice of lust. And this vice of lust is depicted as a lizard perched on his shoulder. He meets the angel of fire who guards the entrance into resurrection glory. And before he can enter in, the angel says he's going to have to get rid of the lizard. Well, the soul gives a long list of excuses not to get rid of it, aided by the dragon whispering in his ear, you know, it's going to hurt. He might kill you if he kills me, the dragon. The guy says, maybe let me consult with other opinions and so forth. But the angel the f- angel of fire is unrelenting. The lizard has to go. Well, finally, the soul permits, grants permission for the angel of fire to slay the lizard of lust. The angel takes the lizard and breaks its neck and throws it on the ground. And when this happens, when the soul is rid of its lust, he becomes radiant in flesh in a new resurrected man. But that's not the best part. As only Lewis can do, Lewis and his brilliance, the lizard of lust on the ground is also resurrected into a great white stallion. And the gates of resurrected heaven open wide, and the resurrected man mounts what used to be his lust, but now is a resurrected stallion of desire and rides off into heaven upon his resurrected, erotic love into everlasting life. That, brothers and sisters, is the story of the conference. I guess I could have saved us a few hours if I just went with Lewis. Such is the nature of Lewis. That's the story, friends. Created with erotic at the center of our existence, deformed into twisted lust, but soon... Not just will we be resurrected, but the erotic will be resurrected, and we will ride off into an eternal destiny of resurrected erotic love. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, our bridegroom, for rescuing your bride. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your unwavering determination and faithfulness, even unto death on a cross, to have us as your own. And we just can't help but pause after this talk and say, come Lord Jesus, hasten the day. We're ready. We're ready for the resurrection. We are ready for eternal bliss. We are ready to feast on the love to which this earthly icon points. Until then, may we be ambassadors of this love story, not just in word, but in deed. Pray for the marriages in this room, O oh, Lord, would they commit themselves to the hard journey, all that it takes, all the sacrifice, all that it takes to join together in mutual erotic love. Pray for the celibate among us. Empower them with nobility. Let them see their calling as holy and high, calling you yourself, Jesus, embraced until, until you have your bride. May they find you in ways that the married among us cannot relate. May they find you in that calling, be empowered in that calling, and walk the path of celibacy well. Pray for this church as it, in the days and weeks and months, to come as people listening to the recording, and I'm sure it will um, strike nerves and, and, and um, bring about past pains and difficulties and sadness and maybe even traumas, abuse. Right, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would graciously lead this congregation through uh, processing and discussions and all that you have before them. We love you, Jesus. We take that word for granted. What is this Christian gospel that invites us to call Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, to view our Savior as a bridegroom? What is this gospel that we get to say to a transcendent Almighty God, we love you? And that even more astounding, we hear you say to us that you love us. Envelop us in your love and send us forth. Through Christ we pray. Amen. All right. Y'all want to go home or you want to talk more? It's up to you. We can answer questions if you have them. 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Yes. Yeah, I missed the entire preface to that, but then I heard you say, what's my advice to those who're struggling with sexual addictions? Is that what you yeah, asked? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What practical into in this and out uh, a desire? Yeah. Um One of my dearest friends is walking the path of sexual addiction recovery um, as we speak. He's nobody, nobody at TCPC or in our presbytery. He, he lives out of state. But um, um he he got into a marriage. Um he he he, he his whole life has, has has been same-sex attracted. His was his wife knew that, got into marriage. Um, um and and was going well, but after the first year of marriage, um, had a moment of infidelity that almost ended it, got recovery, went through recovery, and um, lived, I guess they're about 17, 18 years, and then this year had a similar thing happen. I've been in the midst of walking through that with him. He's in SA, um, all those things, but I think what he would say would two things that he failed on the first is is not being known. And this is my fault as a friend. And candidly, I apologize to him and his wife because I knew this part of his story, and I, like an idiot, just thought that uh, he dealt with that in the first years of marriage, and like he's just moved. Like that, never treat your sexuality with such callousness. Um, I should have been a better friend and faithfully checked in with him. But he would say he he neglected community, um, and and you couldn't tell he neglected community. Deeply involved in. In church, deeply involved in discipleship groups, had an accountability group where they confessed their sins and he would, surf, he would confess surface sins but hiding the deeper stuff. He neglected vulnerable, true community. And when you're alone and isolated in your own sexuality, then, then, then um, erotic lust will, has, has unique power. And so, community, community, community. That community, depending upon your story, um, a church community might be sufficient. But depending on your story, it might unite me more. You might need SA, which is a powerful community. You might need um, a sex therapist, which can be a powerful form of community. So just depend upon your story. Talk to you, your pastors and engage and, and that out. But community, being known in your sexuality, not alone in your sexuality. And then um, and then, um, I turn to Jesus. Um, where he's where the the passage that John Paul points to um when Lux looks looks with lust at another they committed adultery and then immediately what does he say he says therefore if your eye causes you to sin gouge it out if your hand causes you to sin cut it off and what he's doing there is Jesus understands how powerful Erotic lust is. He understands how powerful these desires are within us. So, in this area in particular, there has to be radical commitments of repentance and fidelity in this unique area, particularly. I don't know what go- gouge out your eye, cut off your hand might look like for you, depending on your story. It might look like I, I just can't, I can't own a cell phone, I cannot have a computer in my home. I cannot subscribe to Netflix. I cannot. I have a friend who literally has to avoid his work commute. His house is here. His work is here. It's a five to ten minute commute this way, but it takes him through this area of town and with a lot of adult entertainment and whatnot. And so he turns his uh, ten minute drive into about a 20 minute drive every day. That's gouging out your eye. That's cutting off your hands. Mortification of Sin and the Believer by John Owen. Um, I would recommend the Puritans on this part. There's a lot of parts in this world in this area that I would not recommend the Puritans when it comes to getting this thing under control. John Owen will get, he'll get you. So, uh, so yeah, radical repentance, particularly around this area, radical boundaries and accountability in this particular, and you just have to be known. If your sexuality is hidden, it'll take over. Good question. Yeah, uh, Ryan, I would say first and foremost, don't take it on the road right at point. There's a cage stage to this, I've discovered. Uh, it'd be really good for you all after hearing this to in community, digest, process, maybe you disagree with me on some stuff, that's okay, maybe agree, whatever, but avoid the I'm going to go take, tell everybody about this moment that we tend to do, whether it's coming to the Reformed faith or even our Christian faith. In this area in particular, be careful with this. A lot of digesting and processing. But yes. So I just met with. There's a university in. Um, there's a university in. Um, uh, in Kentucky, you probably know because in the news, the revival Asbury University. It got a lot of attention last year, and um, they just joined the NCAA, um, the athletic association. And they are uh, tomorrow meeting with the DEI of the NCAA, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion um, Committee of the the NCAA, because the NCAA is very aware of their sexual ethics, views, and practices. And so they're meeting on Monday uh, with them. And so their board that's going to meet with them asked if they could spend a day with me this week so I could just kind of prep them on... on, um, on, yeah, on, on how, to, how to approach that room. And um, there are a lot of practical tips that I gave them, and, I, and, and if we had more time, I could give. But I, I think the two, um, the two most important, easily pass onable advice I gave them that have been really successful with me as I've been in the public arena with this stuff, um, one is something that's really disarming um, and this is very biblical, this is Jesus, is to lead with curiosity before conviction and genuine curiosity. Jesus was an incredible question asker. Like He, he, just, he just knew how to ask poignant questions. And I just, I just feel like in this moment, if Christians could learn how to ask great questions and you truly approached your neighbor with a spirit of curiosity and not a spirit of conviction, it would go a long, long, long way. So there's just nothing wrong was saying, I believe this, but I'm genuinely curious about what you believe and how you came to believe it. And the good thing about if we believe that all truth is God's truth and if we believe that this stuff is actually true, the good thing about question answering is question asking is as they answer question and process their story and their beliefs and how they came to believe what they believe and stuff like that, typically it'll just start imploding on itself. And, and, and there will be opportunities for like, that's interesting, here's how I kind of come at this, but just real curious, a curious Christian community more so than a convictional Christian community. And the second thing is to, and this comes out in the Truman Scholarship, that's why I spent so much time on it, just focus far less about the sex and gender identity and far more about the identity thing. You've got to be students of identity and help people understand identity, identity, identity is behind this. And, and what I mean by that is, like, like I know, so they, the board member asked me, I know that this committee, this NCAA committee is going to ask the president of Asbury, I know they're going to look at him and say, so what will you do with a, a, uh, gay, a gay athlete? Are they allowed, are you, can, are you allowed to have gay athletes? And, and the answer is yes, according to Asbury's, of course you're allowed to. But I said, but don't, don't answer yes. Say that's interesting how you just define that student because I think we might just see people differently. Like, that's really interesting how you phrased that question because in my kind of worldview and religion worldview, what I'm taught is I don't really see it that way. It's interesting that you chose that one part of them to be their identity. My, My religious tradition teaches that we are made in the image of God, worthy of dignity and honor and respect, and we're all fallen and broken and need Jesus, but just that question's interesting. I don't really have a category for that. And what he's doing there is he's getting back to the way we view ourselves and less about the sexuality and gender. So really really getting at the identity issue and being really, really curious. In my experience in, this, in, in, in engaging this issue has been really effective. There's a lot more I could share, but those are the two that come to mind. Yeah. How do you make the shift of credibility with credibility? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I joke. I keep deferring to Justin. I, 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 I think that I think that'd be a good discussion for your leadership to have. I really do. I mean, I was like, I can't answer that question. I'm just, I'm just a guest speaker. Uh, um. um Yeah, I I think you lead with your own repentance, definitely. You're a community that's known as, hey, we're a people that are getting really serious about our broken sexuality and finding healing for our broken sexuality, no matter how that manifests, all that stuff. Lead repentance, biblical principles. Um, And the you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you all can't get away with you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Because um, candidly, you're um, an evangelical and predominantly white evangelical community. That you're, that community is not allowed to say, "You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong." So, what I like to say when I'm pointing out the wrong thing is, I like to uh, I like to broaden it out away from me, and I like to gently expose to the world that that this ideology is predominantly a white western wealthy educated thing and so I like to I like to often um bring into the discussion of are are you interested in what Africa Asia Latin America thinks about this issue are you interested in the black community the southern black community um demographic in America thinks about this issue because um like if, if you value diversity, I'm not asking you, I know you're, I know you're, you've heard many times from evangelicals the the trope of you guys are intolerant with your tolerance because you won't accept me. I'm not giving you that trope. Are we, are we going to open this discussion up to a diversity of perspectives? Because globally and even at home, the most, you know, the black population it has the most historic traditional views on these topics, so I like to let them realize they're wrong from a diversity perspective rather than an evangelical perspective. That came up, too, in the, my meeting with Asbury's board. He, the, this person before the meeting said, hey, listen, I'm just going to be upfront and honest. I hate uh, white Christian men, and you just need to know that coming into the room. And he's like, what do I do with that? I was like, well, say the, this, this whole DEI thing is white Christian men. I mean, like progressive Christians— But this is like, this is not a diverse ideology. It really isn't. It kind of comes undone as a white, wealthy, educated movement. But I don't know why I got there. But anyway, other questions? No. <laughs> Somebody else can answer that. I, I have not <laughs> yeah. I had out I love you're saying about fetishizing. Fetishizing? Blessed is the what? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the female body, I, I would argue from Scripture, is, is a unique glory and beauty, and that's affirmed in every culture, historically speaking. We can't escape that. And we follow a faith that says here there is neither male nor female, but all are. You know, so, holding that tension, I think, is really important. Fed us, yeah. I, I, again, don't get. This is this is this is a perfect reason why I say let's avoid cage stage uh, here. Let's 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 nuance this out and flesh this out because it certainly can get taken away. I just, in my estimation, um, in our circles. Uh, the problem is less about like we're going to overemphasize female glory and it's more of like we haven't even considered how prominent female uh, glory and the, and, and, and the female body is in God's story. So I'm just trying to lift that up but I can certainly see that you could take that to an, an unhelpful extreme. I think, that, I think that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. You. You're welcome.